Canaan, Israel, Judah, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and Zion are all used throughout the Bible and history to talk about a very tiny piece of land. It's so small that on the map I have hanging in my dining room, the name doesn't even fit inside the country. The story of the Hebrew people started thousands of years ago when Jewish people like Abraham and Moses played important roles in history. Through them, God gave the world the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, and the way to a relationship with the one and only true God through Jesus Christ. Sadly, Jewish people have faced very hard times. In the 12th and 17th century, there were rumors and lies about them, like the blood libel accusations, which claimed that they did terrible things. During the time of the Crusades and the Fourth Lateral Council in 1215, some leaders in the church made laws that were unfair to Jewish people. They forced them to wear special clothing so that they would stand out. In Spain, during the late 1400s and early 1500s, Jewish people were treated poorly. They had to leave the country or pretend to become Christians. Many Jewish people had to hide who they were in order to stay safe. In today's episode, we're going to tell the story of the church and the Jewish people. Welcome back to the Church History Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Lee. Because of the topic of this episode, there might be people listening to this podcast for the first time. And I want to explain what this podcast is so you can understand the point of view I'm giving. This is a church history podcast, clear by the name, Church History. And in this podcast, we tell the story of the church in chronological order. Our very first episode was about the life of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the church in the book of Acts, the writings of the Bible, the early persecutions, the councils, the crusades, the inquisitions, and the reformations. We've traveled through time, and now we're in the late 1800s. In our last episode, we told you the story of Fanny Crosby, if that gives you some idea about where we are today. During this point in history, in the 1800s, there began a movement called the Zionist Movement. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to tell the story of the men and women who were part of the Zionist Movement. What motivated each one of them? Now remember, there was no one motivation. There were many. Some were political, some were based on prophecy, and some were out of a love for the Jewish people. So this is our first episode in a small mini-series on the Zionist movement. In this episode, I want to recap church history, explaining the relationship between the Jews and the church. Now, since this is a church history podcast, I'm telling the story from the point of view of the church. Now, if we're going to understand the history of Israel, we have to give a quick overview of the Old Testament. Now, I want to tell you, first of all, that if you want to do a great devotional Bible, I recommend getting a chronological Bible that will tell you the story of God and his people in chronological order. You will love it. But here is a really quick recap. The land of Israel has been populated by the Jewish people 
since about 2000 BC. It's their homeland. It was given to them by God. In 1900 BC, God chose Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. God made a promise to Abraham. God would bless the world through his children. God also promised to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him. That promise was handed down to his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is Joseph. He was sold to Egypt as an enslaved person. But what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And when a famine came to his home, Jacob and his family came to Egypt to find food. And Joseph was moved at that point from an enslaved person to second in command of the country. Joseph not only forgave his brothers, but he also set them up with places to live so they could escape the famine. However, after his death, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. And it was in the year 1400 BC that God rescued an Israeli baby named Moses, and the daughter of Pharaoh raised him. Moses grew up to lead the people out of Egypt and back to Israel. But Moses died before reaching the promised land, and it was Joshua who took leadership of the people. They took the land with the fall of Jericho, and then, under Joshua, they divided and conquered the land. God set up judges to rule the land. We have judges like Samuel, Gideon, and Deborah. When the people followed God, he blessed them. But when they turned away from God and did what was right in their own eyes, God would send nations to punish them. But there were always people who believed and honored God. And we can read about some of those people, such as Ruth and Samuel. But then the people wanted a king, so God gave them Saul. He did not have a heart for God. But then God gave them King David. King David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. After David's death, Solomon became king. And in the year 970 BC, King Solomon, son of David, built the first temple structure in Jerusalem. After Solomon's death, there was a division about who should be king. Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, would not listen to his father's wise counsel he listened instead to young men. He treated the people horribly, leading to 10 of the northern kingdoms leaving. So in 930 BC, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. This gave two names to the people, Israelites and Jews. Israelites from the kingdom of Israel and Jews from the kingdom of Judah. Israel had 19 different kings and Judah had 20 kings. Israel had no kings who loved and served God. Judah had eight kings who loved and served God. I want to emphasize this so you make sure that you really grab hold of this. The nation of Israel was divided into two, Israel and Judah. Yet these are the same people. Both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were God's chosen people. By the year 800 BC, we have the rise of the prophets, God's messengers, with a message, follow God or you will get kicked out of this land. The message became a warning that they would be kicked out of the land. Israel would be scattered around the world and Judah 
would be exiled for 70 years and then returned. This was a clear message, though, that through it all, God would never stop loving them. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 29, we read, For I know my plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will find me, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. Another example is in Ezekiel chapter 37, where God says Israel will be like dry bones and God would bring it back to life, something impossible that could only be done by God, and that once put together will never again be destroyed. Imagine with me, you're standing in the middle of a desert. A gust of wind blows up a swirl of dust, and as you look around, you see you're standing in a valley full of old bones. You look around you, and you see nothing but dust and bones. But then you see a man standing there. His name is Ezekiel. He's speaking now. He says, God has commanded these bones to come to life. Suddenly, the bones around you begin to move. They come together, forming skeletons. Then the skin begins to grow over the skeletons, and then the bodies stand. Ezekiel speaks again, and then the breath of life comes into these bodies, and they are awake and alive. Then Ezekiel picks up two sticks. He holds them together, and they suddenly join into one large stick. Ezekiel then says, God declares he will reunify the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. God declares that he will gather the Israelites from the nations. He will cleanse them and establish them in their land under one king, symbolizing God's future kingdom on earth. This is the vision we read in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the prophecy of the nation of Israel. And in our present day, we are seeing this happen. In the year 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. Israel is scattered around the world and won't return to the land until our modern times. Almost a hundred years after that happens, in the year 605 BC, the Babylonians conquer the kingdom of Judah. This is the story of Daniel and his friends being taken into captivity. In the year 586, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. But as God promised, it would only last 70 years. In 539 BC, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and took control of Israel. A year later, 70 years after being taken captive, the Jews are returned to Israel from exile. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, and at the same time, in Persia, which is present-day Iran, Esther, who is a secret Jewish girl and queen of King Xerxes, saves the Jewish people, who have not returned yet, from death at the hands of Haman. The Jews are back in their homeland, and while still under the control of the Persian people, live relatively well. In the year 
333 BC, the Greeks conquered the Persian Empire. Alexander the Great rules the area, and when he dies, he passes his land to his four generals. In 323 BC, the Egyptian and Syrian empires take over Israel. They rule the land, but the people of Israel are still living in it. Then, Antiochus IV takes control of the land, and he rules with an iron fist. He forces the temple to be made into a place to worship Zeus, and sets up a statue of Zeus that happens to look exactly like himself, and forces them to worship him. He kills thousands of Jewish people who refuse to worship the idol and to continue to keep Jewish customs, language, and clothing. That's why, in the year 167 BC, the Maccabee brothers win and Israel and the Jews rule independently. During this time, Queen Alexandria, one of my all-time favorite historical characters, was one of the greatest leaders Israel has ever seen. She turns the hearts of the people back to God and the country flourishes under her. But after her death, her sons turned away from God and started a civil war. And in 70 BC, the Romans conquered Israel. Still, the people of Israel are the ones living in the land. In 20 BC, King Herod builds the third temple or he adds to the second temple, depending on how you want to look at it. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem in the year 6 BC and in between 30 or 33 BC, Jesus was crucified, rose again, and the church was created. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple, and we talk about this in our episode called Death and Destruction. In that episode, you will hear how the church fled Jerusalem, remembering the message that Jesus said, warning them of the destruction. Because of this, the church was not in Jerusalem when it fell. However, over 1 million Jews were killed during this attack. These were the Jewish people living in Judah whose families had lived in the land since the time of Joshua, other than the 70 years that they were in exile. I highly recommend going back and listening to that episode because it's an important part both in church history and in Jewish history. Now remember again, we have two nations, Israel and Judah. As God promised, the people of Israel are scattered throughout the world, but the people of Judah spent only 70 years in exile. They lived on that land all the way until today, the same people. There has never been a time when Jews did not live on that land. They stayed, built communities, raised families, and practiced their faith. The War of 70 AD was a horrific one, and the temple was destroyed. While this was a huge splitting point between the church and the Jewish people, 62 years later, another event divided the church and the Jewish people even more. The tensions between the Jews and the church were already very high. Many Jews blamed the church for leaving them before the war of 70 AD and saw them as traitors. They thought they should have stayed and fought for their homeland because at this point, most of the church was Jewish. But in the year 132, Shimon Bar Kokhba led a fierce and determined Jewish revolt against the Roman rule. This uprising, known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, was a response to the opposition, policies, and restrictions the Roman Empire put on the Jewish population after the War of 70 AD. Now, Shimon was a charismatic leader who inspired hope and rallied the Jewish people against their Roman oppressors. His name means son of a star, 
and some believed he was the long-awaited Messiah. With a strong following, he led a three-year-long rebellion against the Roman forces. And at some points, it looked like he was going to win. He gained control of large parts of Judah, and he established an independent Jewish state. But the church was opposed to the movement because he claimed to be the Messiah. The Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah, but the church knew Jesus was the Messiah. He had already come. The Roman Empire, under the leadership of Emperor Hadrian, responded to the uprising with a brutal force, and the conflict was devastating, resulting in widespread destruction, loss of life, and so much suffering for the Jews and the Romans. The Roman legions sent their entire superior military force and crushed the rebellion. In the revolt's aftermath, Emperor Hadrian wanted to completely erase Jewish identity and any ties to the land. He took the drastic step of renaming the region, which was named Judea, and he changed it to Syria-Palestine. This name change was a deliberate effort to sever the historical connection between the Jewish people and their homeland. The term Palestine was derived from the ancient Philistines, an unrelated people who had lived in the area but had gone extinct about 800 years earlier. Goliath, the giant whom David fought, was a Philistine. The Philistines had been the enemies of Israel, and all throughout the Old Testament, we hear stories of these people, including the story of Samson. The Philistines would be closer to our modern-day Greek people than anyone else we have. However, the people don't exist anymore and didn't exist during this point in history either. Palestine was not a people, it was a country. It was a made-up name the emperor attached to Judah as a way to humiliate the Jewish people. The name Palestine was given and it humiliated the people. The renaming of the land to Palestine marked a significant turning point in history. It was part of the broader Roman campaign to end the Jewish identity. But despite all of this, the Jewish people continued, and they continued to preserve their culture. Many Jewish people were forced to move to different areas of the Roman Empire. The Romans believed that if the Jews were scattered, they would be less likely to revolt again. While many Jewish families were exited out of the land, still the land was populated by Jewish people. Now let's stop here and note that the name Palestine is not an Arabic name. First of all, look at the letter P. And just so you are aware, there is no P sound in Arabic. And in the Arabic alphabet, there is no letter P. Not a single Arabic word has the P sound. So why would an Arabic country start with a letter that does not exist in their language? That's because Palestine was named by the Romans based on an extinct Greek culture to humiliate the Jewish people who were living in the land and to erase their culture. It had nothing to do with Arabs. The second Jewish revolt of 135 AD set a course of Christianity turning the church away from Jewish people. I believe that this was in a defining moment between the church and the Jewish people. Remember, the church opposed the movement from the very start, yet the church, many of them being Jewish, 
were faced the consequences of this revolt. So the church separated itself from the Jewish people as a way of saying, punish them, not us. This had nothing to do with us. Now we should be able to reflect on this point and see all sides of this incident. The Jewish people wanted to be free from Rome, and they could see from prophecy that God had promised he would reestablish Israel, and they wanted freedom. Of course, they revolted against Rome. From the church's point of view, they knew the revolt wasn't going to work. They knew that Shimon was not the Messiah. But they still faced extreme opposition, and their lives were impacted in a very negative way, many of them losing loved ones. So being angry was a reasonable response. But as Christians today, we have to look back at the church leaders at this time and know that what they wrote and taught about theology and the nation of Israel should be seen through the lens of the church at this time that was in conflict with the Israel nation and angry with them. We have to remember that the consequences of this revolt to early Christianity was profound. Many Christian communities began distancing themselves from any Jewish practices and any Jewish beliefs. This period between Christianity and Judaism saw a large rise in anti-Jewish sentiment within the church. Some Christian leaders, seeking to establish a completely separate identity for Christians, moved away from Jewish interpretation and adopted a Gentile-friendly theology. This shift started the foundation for what would become known as replacement theology, which is a theology that says the church replaced Israel in God's plan. In my opinion, let me emphasize this, in my opinion, Satan has used this as an opportunity to infiltrate the church. Satan has hated the nation of Israel since the time of Abraham, and if Satan can use the church to hurt the nation of Israel, that would be an ultimate win for him. When we read promises in the Bible, we can see two kinds of promises, conditional and unconditional. Conditional promises will have words such as if or when. For example, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. That is a conditional promise. But there are non-conditional promises, such as Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 25 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely. They will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 28 says, And they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. In Amos chapter 9 verses 14 to 15 also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. 
And they also will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's look at several early Christian theologies and church fathers who contributed to the development and teaching of replacement theology. Now, it's worth noting that these figures had an influence, but not all of them fully embraced replacement theology. Justin Martyr. Justin's father was a Roman military leader who was put in charge of the Jewish people after the temple was destroyed in 70. We told his story in the episode, Just a Pinch. You can go back and listen to his story and many others in that episode. Justin came to Christ as an adult and did many great things. He was killed for his faith and is a hero of our faith. But Justin Martyr was known for his writings and his relationship between Judaism and Christianity. He believed that the Christian faith had taken over the Jewish faith. While we look and admire his writings and love the impact that he had on the church, we have to remember that his writings were not inspired. We also have to see how he was raised. The time in which he was raised and the home in which he was raised would have impacted his thinking towards the Jewish people. Another hero of our faith is Oregon. I talked about him as well in one of our earlier episodes. Origen's teachings sometimes hinted at a form of replacement theology. He really emphasized allegorical interpretations of scripture, which could be seen as moving away from the literal understanding of God's covenant with Israel. Then there was a man named John Christoms. His sermons contained very strong anti-Jewish rhetoric, and he promoted the idea that the Christian church had completely replaced the Jewish people and it was now the church that was God's chosen people. He was born in the year 347, and he's one of the most famous people in church history. His name actually means golden-mouthed because he was such an incredible preacher. But throughout his life, he really advocated for social justice. He challenged people living in excess or corruption in his sermons. He had a commitment to the poor and he was really a beloved figure during his time. However, he was also known for very, very harsh criticism of the Jewish people, and his teaching opposed the Jewish people and claimed that the church had replaced Israel and the church was now God's new chosen people. The theology of replacing Israel with the church moved quickly into outright hatred for the Jewish people, Church leaders began to blame Jewish people for killing Jesus. As a Christian, I know that I am the one responsible for the death of Jesus. My sins held him to the cross. Your sins held him to the cross. As far as what people literally nailed him to the cross, it was the Romans. Yes, at the request of the Israeli leadership, but ultimately under the will of God. Jesus' death on the cross is why he came to earth. And it would seem that the church leadership should have understood that. And yet, we see such writings as St. George, who wrote, Jews are slayers of the Lord, murderers of the prophets, enemies, haters of God, adversities of grace, enemies of their father's faith, advocates of the devil, a blood of vipers, slanders, scoffers, men of darkened mind, the leaven of Pharisees, 
a congregation of demons, sinners, wicked men, and haters of goodness. This was one of the main bishops during the years 335 to 395. So we can see that it wasn't just a bad theology that was spreading through the church, but an actual hatred of the Jewish people. Jerome was another church leader who made a huge impact on the church, but he heavily preached replacement theology. And then in the year 415, there was a huge event that happened that was very important to church history. This happened in Alexandria in Egypt, and it was driven by the actions of someone named St. Cyril of Alexandria. He was a prominent Christian leader, and he preached anti-Jewish sermons, which ultimately led to violence. Cyril of Alexandria was a powerful and influential figure, and he was a patriarch of Alexandria, one of the significant places for Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition. Now, Alexandria was this really diverse, cosmopolitan city, and a lot of Jewish people lived there right alongside Christians. And at first, it would have been a great community, living together side by side. But Cyril's actions really brought in conflicts. In his sermons, he preached harshly against Jewish people, telling his congregation to go out and treat the Jewish people poorly. All of that came to a head in the year 415, when this series of violent clashes erupted. The church actually targeted Jewish synagogues and homes, burning them to the ground. During this time, the Jews faced extreme persecution at the hands of the church. Another important person in church history was Augustine, and I did an episode on him, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. While Augustine did many good things, his views on the Jewish people were disturbing to say the least. In the City of God, Augustine says that the Jews are under an eternal curse. And in this book, he claims that Jewish people lost their right to be called people of God. He called on the church to go out and punish the Jews. And his writings are used all the way until today in many churches as an excuse for treating Jewish people horrifically. While the church was treating the Jewish people poorly, things were about to get worse because Mohammed was born. Israelites at this point are scattered throughout the world and in many different countries, and the people of Judah, still living in the land they had lived in since Joshua, except for the 70 years they were held in captivity. Now, I have an episode that tells the life of Mohammed and I'm not going to get into his story now, but go ahead and check out that episode. However, Muhammad began enforcing rules on both the Christian and Jewish communities. It was not until after Muhammad's death that his followers conquered the land of Israel, which at the time was known as Palestine, built a mosque where the temple had been. This is the holiest site for the Jewish people and where they plan to rebuild their temple. During this time, the land that was controlled by Islamic rules forced Jewish people to wear a Star of David on their clothes and Christians to wear special belts. This is the actual law that was written. Two yellow badges will be displayed, one on the headgear and one on the neck. Furthermore, each Jew must hang around their neck a piece of lead weighing three grams. He is also to wear a special belt around his waist. 
the women must wear one red and one black shoe with a small bell on their neck or shoes. That was land run by Islam. However, the land run by Christians also made the Jewish people wear a star. In 1274, Edward I of England brought in a law called the Statue of Jewry. And in that law, it says, Each Jew, after he is seven years old, shall wear a distinguishing mark on his outer garment. That is to say, in the form of two tablets joined of yellow felt of the length of six inches and the breadth of three inches. And just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, the crusade started. And during the first crusade, the Jewish communities were targeted and massacres occurred in a place called Rhineland. In the first crusade, which was launched in the year 1096, it was a military campaign primarily aimed at reclaiming the Holy Land from Muslim control. As the crusaders made their way towards Jerusalem, they passed through various European regions, including Rhineland. And during their journey, some crusaders motivated by religious enthusiasm and their desire to gain money targeted Jewish communities in the Rhineland. There was horrific massacres and many innocent Jewish men, women, and children were killed. When the crusaders reached the Holy Land, they fought the Islamic rulers. Their claim was to free Israel from the hands of Islam, but they ended up also burning a synagogue. And there are historical documents that say the synagogue was full of Jewish people hiding, and there are other documents that say it was empty. What we do know is that during the siege of Jerusalem, the church attacked not only the Islamic rulers, but the Jewish community as well. When Europe and the church leadership ruled over Israel briefly, things were pretty good for the Jewish people. But then Saladin took the land back a hundred years later and Islam ruled over the land again. While Islam is ruling the land, the people of Israel, the Jewish people are still living there. And Saladin is not an Arab, he's a Kurd. Even with Saladin ruling over the land, Palestine is only a misnamed geography area. There's still no Palestinian language and no Palestinian ruler. It's the Jewish people living in Israel, a renamed land. After Saladin, the Ottoman Turks conquered the Holy Land. Still, the Jewish people are living there. They're ruled by the Ottomans and they ruled that land for 400 years. It's relatively peaceful and the Jewish people live grow their families, keep their tradition, although not free, they can live. We did an episode on the Greek people who the Ottomans also ruled for 400 years before gaining their freedom. During the Fourth Lateral Council in 1215, anti-Jewish policies were enforced again with the church forcing the Jewish people to wear specific clothes. Pope Innocent III was speaking about church doctrine and governing, and he began a council specifically to force anti-Jewish policies. And in his law, he required Jewish citizens to wear special marks or clothing that set them apart from the rest of society. This was part of the growing anti-Jewish hate that was in our churches. Then the Black Death swept through Europe and North Africa and some estimate between 75 all the way up to possibly 200 million people died. 
But the Jewish community at that time was following really strict sanitary laws of the Old Testament, so they mainly went untouched. But the church then claimed that the Jews were worshipping Satan and that it was witchcraft that kept them safe. Some went even farther as to say that it was witchcraft in the first place that was making everyone sick. So many Jews were actually blamed for the Black Death Plague, even though the reality was the Jewish community was literally the only community not responsible for the plague, since they were the only ones not spreading the germs, since they were the ones following Old Testament guidelines. Next came the Spanish Inquisition, and during this time, Jews faced extreme persecution, forced conversions, and expulsion out of Spain. Life for the Jewish people during the Spanish Inquisition was marked with fear, persecution. The Inquisition was established to ensure Catholic orthodoxy, and at this time, true Christian believers were also hurt and killed, burned at the stake. And I did episodes on the Inquisition. I will put those in the show notes as well. But then King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel issued a decree in the year 1492 that led to expelling the Spain's Jewish population out of the country of Spain, even though they had lived there for centuries. Some Jewish people were forced to convert to Christianity. Although, of course, we know you can't force someone to convert to Christianity. Being a Christian is a personal choice each person has to make. However, during the Spanish Inquisition, many Jews were forced to say that they had been converted. They changed their names to Christian-sounding names such as Christopher. This is why some believe that Christopher Columbus may have been one of the Jewish children given a Christian-sounding name, although no one has been able to prove this. You can hear more about the Inquisitions and Christopher Columbus in my earlier episodes. But it was a very dark and distressing period in the history of the Jewish communities in Spain. Jewish people were uprooted from their homes and faced persecution with relentless pursuit by the church. Now, still to this day, we have two groups of people. The Jewish people have occupied the land of Judah, except for that brief 70 years of captivity in Babylon. However, the Israeli people have been scattered over the earth as God promised. They have faced persecution in literally every country they have lived in. And that persecution has come not only from Islam, but also from the church. During the 12th and all the way till the 17th century, the church began lies known as the blood libels. They claimed that the Jews were using the blood of Christian children for ceremonies, especially during Passover holidays. These lies led to violence and extreme persecution on the Jewish community. One of the most important cases happened in England in the year 1144 when a young boy named William of Norwich was found dead and it was claimed that the local Jewish population had killed him and taken his blood. There was no proof of this but it led to many Jewish people being killed and their homes burned. And then we have the Reformation. And I did four episodes telling the life of Martin Luther, who was, of course, an extremely influential person in church history. And while he did so many great things, the tragedy of his life was his treatment of the Jewish people. He wrote a pamphlet called On the Jews and Their Lives, 
And in this pamphlet, he called for the church to burn all the synagogues and kick the Jews out of their homes. In fact, it was this pamphlet that Hitler used later in his life as a way to try to get the church on board with what he was doing to the Jewish community. But it was literally every part of the world the Jews moved to where they faced this kind of persecution. And in the 17th century, we had an uprising in Ukraine and Poland. During this time, a group of warriors rebelled against the Polish rulers. And while the fight had nothing to do with the Jewish people, still during the uprising, the Jewish communities were hit by both groups of people and thousands of Jewish people were hurt or killed. Another great man in our history is John Calvin. I talked about him in an episode, and you can go back and listen to that episode if you'd like as well. Well, John Calvin did many great things, including aiding Christians who were escaping England during the reign of Bloody Mary. His views on the Jewish people were horrible. He wrote, The rotten and unbended stiffness of the Jews deserves that they are oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. That's terrible. So John Calvin was calling on the church and the country to oppose the Jewish people, kill them, and for the church to show no pity. Then in 1775 to 1782, we have the American Revolutionary War. The Jewish people of America were part of the funding that helped the war. I did an episode on that. In our episode came Solomon. He believed that America could be a place where the Jewish people could finally find freedom and peace. You definitely want to go back and listen to that episode. In the 1700s, the Enlightenment improved Jewish rights. And in many European countries, they thought maybe they would finally be free. But while the Jewish people had hope during this period, the hope did not last long. Because in the 1800s, there was a rise again of Jewish hate. And this is where we are in our church history right now. We are in the 1800s. And this is when there was the start of the Zionist movement. And over the next few weeks, we're going to hear about some of these people, such as Lord Arthur Balfour, the pastor William E. Blackstone, Reverend John Wilkins, Schofield, and many others. We will look at the socialist movement that pushed for Zionism. We will look at the church's movement And we will look at also the whole world as many other countries were beginning to gain independence. I know right now we're living in this crazy time when there are messages coming at us from many different places, from many different points of view. And I hope you're going to find this series helpful. I want to close by reading the passage again from Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, you will find me, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God planned from the beginning that his people would be returned to the promised land. And that is the most important thing to remember. So join us next week as we begin to look closer at this period of church history and the people who were part of the Zionist movement. I'm Lurley Siemens, and I'll see you next week.